the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid I... They knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Good so far. Josh is not a stranger to this. Oh my! That was a great gut wrench moment oh to go to Bad Bones and what a power bomb! Bad Bones balls may be broken in half. Good lord! Bad Bones stacked up there off the power bomb from Barnett. I think Bad Bones is out on his feet. And now look at this Northern Lights. Roll over. He's got Bad Bones hooked up, has the arm. Watch this is what you're going to have to deal with. Bad Bones taps out. The winner of the match via tap out submission, Josh Barnett. So Josh Barnett enters the world of Impact Wrestling, steps inside the six-sided ring, sends a message to you, champ. You have to deal with this next week for your world title. I know one thing, Lesson has to watch out for that key lock. See how quickly Barnett locked him up. Yeah. Lashley knows what awaits him. That's Josh Barnett for the World Championship. You have a prediction for your match next week? I'm a Wolf All right, this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Brought to you today and powered by our good friends over at Blue Chew. Stay tuned a little bit later on in the show and you're going to hear just how you can save on your first order of Blue Chew by using the two-man power trip of wrestling's promo code courtesy of our friends over at Blue Chew and BlueChew.com. 
And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only JP, John Paz. And John, to come here in just a couple of minutes as he brings forward another great interview with the one and only Josh Barnett joining the two-man power trip. And Josh Barnett, perfect for that crossover appeal if you like the wrestling meets MMA worlds. And Josh Barnett will be taking part in Josh Barnett's Bloodsport on April 4th in Jersey City, in New Jersey, with Game Changer Wrestling, an independent company that is absolutely uh, redefining what the independent wrestling events are throughout the United States. They've had a lot of New Jersey shows, and they've had some in California as of late. But Game Changer Wrestling bringing in Josh Barnett for Josh Barnett's Bloodsport on April 4th. But even though we'll talk about the marriage between MMA and professional wrestling, Josh Barnett is no stranger to the world of pro wrestling, making his pro wrestling debut back in the Tokyo Dome in 2003, main eventing against Yuji Nagata. And obviously, uh, that's a pretty good way to start your professional wrestling career. And he's obviously had a lot of professional wrestling ties throughout his combat sports career, including being a Axis TV color commentator for New Japan Pro Wrestling. But look, this is a great interview. I'm not one who's really too uh, familiar with the crossover from mixed martial arts into professional wrestling. That is John's forte. So we're going to let John's interview do the, uh, the talking here with Josh Barnett. And I want to take a minute here to remind you of our two shows that we have coming up in the 2019 calendar. First, April 7th, just a few days after Josh Barnett's Bloodsport, we have Mark out at the Meadowlands at the Meadowlands Hotel in New Jersey, just a few minutes away from MetLife Stadium, where we will have a football meets wrestling crossover convention featuring Stan Hansen, Tito Santana, good old JR Jim Ross, Tully Blanchard, Danny Spivey, The Natural Butch Reed, and Scott Putsky in the Football Meets Wrestling column, but then some great guests, including Allison Kay, a.k.a. Sienna from Impact Wrestling, Bob Roop, just announced we also included the Cowboys, Scott Casey, courtesy of the Captain's Corner, and so many great vendor guests, including Brutus the Barber Beefcake and the Tonga Kid, to name a few. And all that information is over at matmcon.com, so get your tickets now. And join us at Mark Out at the Meadowlands on April 7th. And just a couple of weeks after that, we've got TMPT Con 3, the 35th anniversary of the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette at the Holiday Inn down there in Richmond, Virginia on Commerce Road. You can head over to our website, tmptofwrestling.com, and that will take you over to the Brown Paper Tickets link for all the VIP information to include the Jim Cornette Experience and that is going to be one amazing show, also including the Rock and Roll Express. will be in attendance, signing autographs, and meeting and greeting all the fans coming down to Richmond, Virginia. So with all that being said, let's wrap it up here and get it on over to a good one with John and the one and only Josh Barnett. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer, Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., 
Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, a former UFC heavyweight champion, a Pancrase openweight champion. He is a mixed martial arts Hall of Famer. He's also a former commentator of New Japan Wrestling on Axis TV. He is the one and only Josh Barnett. Please enjoy. He's also a former UFC World Heavyweight Champion. You may know him as a pro wrestler or an MA, MMA superstar, but he is the Warmaster himself, Josh Barnett. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thanks for having me on. Hey, no problem at all. So first and foremost, got to talk about something that's coming on April 4th in Jersey City, New Jersey, part of this huge kind of WrestleMania week, but... GCW, Game Changer Wrestling. They're really kind of pumping it up and going big with Josh Barnett's Bloodsport. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's going on with Bloodsport and this huge event coming to New Jersey in April? Well, um, we aim to put on uh, an event that you're not going to find pretty much anywhere else, let alone during WrestleMania week. And uh, uh, when I was brought on board, to be a part of this. I, it wasn't just a matter of, of wrestling in the event. It was, uh, I wanted to be a part of creating what this event would be. And I, I really felt like that I was capable of doing something that almost nobody else would be able to do, uh, in pro wrestling. And, and luckily GCW, um, they, they had faith in me from the get and we haven't even announced all of our, our participants yet um, because you know, a lot of it is trying to uh, disperse the announcements to inc- to get people, uh, keep people's attention, but also uh, we haven't even announced matchups. So I know that once, once we, as we've released the athletes themselves, you know, that's garnered a lot of interest and a lot of buzz. Once we 
put these matchups up uh, to, to show who's fighting who, uh, it's really going to go nuts. Yes, so far announced, which is pretty great. Obviously, yourself is going to be a major, major part of it. But you got Dan Severn, you got Frank Mir, which is huge and a shock to itself because hasn't done any pro wrestling before. Then you got Tom Lawler, Minoru Suzuki, Hideki Suzuki, Timothy Thatcher. You got a lot of great Jonathan Gresham. Can't forget him. It's got a lot of great big time names. It's a pretty awesome cast so far. Yes, it is. And we announced uh, Masashi Takeda um, from uh, the Deathmatch scene. I believe he wrestles for Big Japan uh, over in uh, in Japan. He's also got a, a shoot background. And uh, Andy Williams is also competing in it. Awesome stuff. Now, when you're kind of going through and, like you're saying, you're creating this big event, you're making it different, is it really important for you to get some rare guys? Like, obviously, Hideki Suzuki is his first time really performing in the United States, and Frank Mir is his first time doing pro wrestling. Is that really important to you to get a super, super rare guest like that? Mm, I mean, it's, no, not entirely. But with with Hideki, uh, he's a student of mine, and he is one of the – he is – arguably Billy's last guy that he created and he, Billy and uh, Billy Robinson and uh, uh, Yuko Miyato trained uh, Hideki from the ground up. And he's also spent uh, a lot of time training under me as well, but um, he is kind of Billy Robinson in, in, in a, reincarnated in a way to some degree. And he, in my opinion, is one of the, his, the most underrated wrestler in the world by far in Japan, especially. And he can, he could work literally anybody that you call a superstar in anywhere in the world and have a great match. If not outwork them, in my opinion, he, and it's, it's really a pleasure of mine to bring him to the U S so people here can see him uh, up front and, and, and close. Uh, to bring someone like Frank Mir into this event, well, I, I don't really see any other event that would be appropriate to have Frank, Frank Mir, to be honest. And so, this is really the this is the the ven- this is the event that he can he can show his his skills off and uh, and have it make the most impact. I think um, you know I don't treat professional wrestling as being separate from any other combat sport. So uh, having someone like Frank Mir involved isn't really unusual to me. Um, but I, I do want to make sure that the athletes that I bring on board are, uh, are capable of delivering the product that I expect and for the expectations that I have as well. So uh, that's not an easy thing, <laughs> and um, I hold myself to those, to those same expectations. Now, this event will be at the White Eagle Hall in Jersey City, New Jersey. It's going to be big, and obviously there's going to be a ton of fans in the area for WrestleMania week, but when – GCW comes to you and they, you know, blood sport kind of fits you perfectly. And when, when you think of that awesome picture of you, you know, slicing the neck, if you will, I mean, it's just absolutely just perfect kind of going hand to hand. How do they kind of approach you with it? What, what do they say? Like, you know, you, you know, obviously you're the guy that they want, but how, how did the whole, you know, persuasion go? Uh, uh, a dozen roses and a box of chocolates mainly. <laughs> um, I was, possibly going to be the main event against Matt Riddle last year. And uh, it just didn't work out. We, we spoke early on and then it was low key. And then 
uh, when, when low key wasn't didn't work out, then it was Minoru Suzuki, which was awesome. And uh, so when Matt got picked up by the WWE, they approached me again and said, "Hey, we want to keep this thing going. Um, would you be interested?" And I said, "Yeah, I, I am interested. You know, with some caveats, but um, we were both on the same page. We trust in each other's." Um, uh, visions and, and ability to execute. So it, it really, I mean, it wasn't, won't say anything is easy because as much as we've assembled uh, so far and have garnered the interest that we have, and we still have to get to, you know, fight day. We still have to go out there and, and perform and, and compete. So um, it's, we're moving ever closer to that date, which is great. And uh, we have a, a awesome foundation. Um, so uh, it's it's a lot of hard work, and it's it's going to be worth it. I think it's pretty great. All those other names are great, but you yourself, getting you on, you wrestle obviously primarily in Japan or have, but you really haven't wrestled too much in the States. I know uh, last year against, or maybe it was a little over uh, a year ago, against Jeff Cobb over in California. I mean, you really haven't wrestled too much in the States. I think that's pretty rare in itself. How come not as much pro wrestling in the States, obviously, compared to Japan? Uh, to be honest, there's simply, there's no money, so I don't bother. Hmm. Um, and um, there's not really anywhere that I want to wrestle, or for the most part, there's not people that I want to wrestle. So it, it doesn't, there's no... I don't really have any interest. And so when it came about with something like Jeff Cobb, um, my friend uh, was putting that event together and he, he approached me and said, Hey, I, I had this main event match, but now I don't. And I'm left with trying to find someone to wrestle Cobb and I don't have anybody. Could you help? Could you help me out? And I said, well, yeah, I'll do it because one, it's, it's Jeff Cobb. He's fantastic. That's a guy I would actually like to wrestle. And it's someone I've even spent some time working with before um, outside of the ring. And, you know, we donated money to a charity. You know, it wasn't about making any money. It was just going out there and putting on a good show um, and having a, a matchup that, that was interesting to me. And then then Andy Williams and, and Every Time I Die puts on this gigantic Christmas uh, show every year in Buffalo. And so the first year that they had ever incorporated a, a wrestling segment to it uh, in the day, I said, of course, I'll, I'll come out. You know, this is just me being out there for you. And, you know, they, we sorted out and they were able to get Thatcher to come in to wrestle. So there's no way I'm going to pass up wrestling Tim Thatcher. Um, Cause there's no way to, to teach someone other than to actually just get in there and do it. And uh, Tim has been an uh, amazing student, uh, and I'm really been really proud of all of his work, and uh, I think he's absolutely fantastic. And I hope there's only more opportunities to to wrestle him uh, in the future. So I guess I shouldn't say there's nobody that I, I, that out there that I want to wrestle. There there is a select few, but you know, it's not it's not financially viable in general uh, for me the way I see it. Plus you know, cause I could be doing seminars or other things or just if I was to go over and wrestle in Japan, I, I just, I would, it pays better to do that. But come March 14th, I'm also going to wrestle Tom Lawler, 
who's also on this uh, Bloodsport card. And again, it's for my my friends at uh, QPW. So it's just a, a matter of interest there. It's like, all right, I want to see what this guy's made of. And I've known him for a while. And I've seen his work uh, as a shooter and as a professional wrestler. So uh, I'm going to put him through it. That should be great. Looking forward to that. And, of course, you know, you made a brief appearance at Impact Wrestling uh, for TNA, if you will, wrestled Bad Bones. But more importantly for the Impact World Championship, you ended up wrestling Bobby Lashley. Now, mm-hmm. was that a guy that kind of piqued your interest, so to speak? Oh, I love Bobby. That son of a bitch. <laughs> um, uh, we go way back. Uh, he is a very dear friend of mine, uh, but that doesn't stop us from being incredibly competitive with one another. And, uh, you know, anytime I've ever taken him down in training, it's just nonstop ribbing, nonstop ribbing. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I was really, I've always been really proud to call him my friend, but I've been in his corner for a good chunk of his fights. And he's never lost a fight that I was, that I trained him for or have been in his corner with. So uh, through our MMA um, uh, work together, and, and Bobby is, has helped me out too uh, and, and during training camps and helped. You know, Bobby's always been great in that he's helped put some of his wisdom and experience into people that I've worked with on in just, you know, wrestling technique as far as, uh, you know, how he likes to hit his shots and finishes and transitions that he'll do or takedown work to uh, – um, when I've had professional wrestlers I was training, like Shayna Baszler, going out of his way to, to get in the ring with them and work with them and uh, impart, you know, parts of his, his experience, which, you know, he's a fantastic professional wrestler. And I'm so happy to see him out there uh, kicking ass in the WWE and being up on that, that big stage. Um, but wrestling in Japan against him and, and all that, it was, it's a blast. And I love, uh, I love locking up with Bobby and I'd do it in a heartbeat anytime. And I was glad to be able to go there and, and uh, get on his home turf and give him some, give him some static. How did that all kind of come about? Did he kind of say, Hey, you know, there's an opportunity here. Did you kind of go out seeking it? How did that all kind of come to fruition? No idea. I'm sure Bobby had something to do with it, uh, but yeah, they were looking for someone to uh, to get to get some work out of Bobby, I guess, in a way that others, you know, weren't, I suppose, or to to give a matchup that would perhaps challenge or appear on on paper to be a challenge that he hasn't had yet, because uh, he was on a real run there in TNA, and so voila, I had my my couple matches down there, and then uh, you know. That was it. It was it was fun, and Bad Bones was uh, you know it was a real honor to to get to know him as well and to share the ring with him. So obviously, you know, MMA superstar, former UFC champion, which we'll be talking about, former king of camp, uh, excuse me, thing of easy for me to say, king of pancreas. But for your pro wrestling, it's pretty insane to think about your debut for New Japan Pro Wrestling in 2003 main event in the Tokyo Dome, the big January 4th show against Yuji Nagata for the IWGP title. I mean, does it get any bigger than that for a wrestling debut? I mean, that's pretty surreal if you think about it. It, it was nuts. Uh, and it wasn't something that I had any 
any idea that that's where it would go right off the bat. I mean, it, it started from me emailing uh, Tsuyoshi Kosaka, who was the great friend of mine and a long-term training partner, long-time training partner, and he was doing some matches in New Japan. And I hit him up and I said, holy crap, I would love to wrestle in New Japan. Could you get me an introduction? And that quickly worked, uh, quickly advanced to uh, flying to Santa Monica to the Inoki Dojo, um, meeting with with the office and carving out a deal rather quickly. And then all of a sudden, you're going to wrestle Yuji Nagata. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm going to wrestle the IWGP heavyweight champion. And it's also Yuji Nagata, a guy that I absolutely loved watching in WCW and in New Japan. This is bonkers. But I know this guy is incredible and that, if anything, I know he could probably carry me and make me look better out there, but but I don't I don't want to give him all that kind of work. I, I got to figure out a way to do what it is that I know how to do, uh, in a that and have it translate because uh, you know I, it's it's no fun when you're when you're the one guy in the ring who can who can actually keep pushing things along. And so I got over there. I we I had two days of working out. And that was it. Just went out there and um, but the the one of the bummers was I caught uh, chicken pox before and I'd never had it before. I'm twenty four years old at the time. Hmm. And so I had to work out I'm out there under the lights with chicken pox, just suffering. Uh and my temperature was rising up. It was it was pretty miserable, but um it wasn't until like the couple of days later when I had to take the flight back and all of a sudden I had all the, the pox all over me. It just looked like an insane person. But hmm. um, walking to the ring, I had Enton in a way as my, my corner man for the match. And, uh, you know, I walked to the ring um, in front of like 45,000 some odd people, you know, uh, which is it's crazy. You know, back back then we would do, 40 some 40 plus thousand 50 plus thousand uh, all the time at the dome shows and uh it's it just seeing all those people and hearing that noise it's, it's crazy and it's an unbelievable kind of way to make your debut and like you said you didn't have that much training was that just kind of immense pressure or do you think that that was immense pressure on nagata that he's got to kind of, you know, make sure that this is a, you know, it's a main event of the January 4th show. It's the biggest show of the year. A lot of pressure on him, or was that, you know, really, really a lot of pressure on you to make sure that you guys made it the main event of the biggest show? I'm sure it was on both of us in different ways. Um, and, you know, I they knew what I was capable of, and I said, look, I've been watching professional wrestling forever. Uh, I am a real wrestler fighter i you know if you i know how to you i'm not going to have a problem taking a fall i any kind of suplex you want me to do or whatever i can pull it off i can moves are moves the moves are easy but obviously there's a lot more to 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 wrestling than moves but uh um you know i put a lot of pressure on myself to 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 look like i belong out there and uh and I, you know, I can't speak for Nagata. Uh, I'm sure, as seasoned uh, a vet as he is, or was even then, uh, he was dealing with it in a different way. But uh, that was a 
massive IWGP title defense run too for him. And I, you know, even though I'm on the the losing side of this this equation, I'm still glad that I could be a part of that uh, that, that legendary run. Very very cool way to make your debut. It's almost like um, not too many people get to kind of make that that big of an impact right away or that big of a debut right away. But obviously, coming off of you know, not really coming off, but as you're currently a huge MMA star, that kind of make the transition easier because you know you're a catch wrestler by by nature. You're an MMA star. You're used to performing in front of big crowds. I mean, is that kind of an easier transition going from MMA to pro wrestling? I think it depends on the individual. It really does. For me, it, it, uh, I wouldn't call it, I mean, it makes it, made it easier for me to be able to do that, but there was nothing easy about it, I'll say. And, uh, you know, my debut matches headlining the Tokyo Dome against Eugene Nagata, my very next match that I ever wrestled, uh, was a tag team on tour. Uh, and it was me and Perry Saturn versus, uh, Masahiro Chono and Hiroyoshi Tenzan. And it's just like, okay, uh, well, you just go from the Brian pan to the fire and it just keeps going. And it was, it was even, I think even a bit more uh, nerve wracking to some degree, because now I got more people to, to consider and I'm in the ring, not only on my side, but on the other side of all these guys that I just think are freaking awesome I've watched so much of their stuff and I think are so killer and there's me. <laughs> I'm just wondering how the hell did I get into this? But uh, by being able, by already being in front of the camera and having crowds and dealing with those big moments, it, it does help. But I don't think that by, you can't be- become a, a professional wrestler just because that you were a professional fighter. It, I don't, I don't think everybody is, capable of doing that just as much as I, I don't think every professional wrestler could be a, a pro uh, pro fighter either. So, you know, it really, really depends. That's very true. I mean, for every Sakuraba, there's a CM Punk or, you know, so, so to speak, there's always the guy who can really, really transition well. And there's the guy that kind of, you know, not so much, uh, so to speak. Well, I always, I would temper uh, trying to criticize, uh, you know, Phil, CM Punk, uh, really, because he went in way over here. And here's the thing. He didn't have an option. And people could say, well, he could have fought amateur. He could have done this and he could have done that. And it's like, no, nah, not really, because he would have wasted his impact and his ability to maximize that whole opportunity. He would have just, it would have been ruined. And that's hmm, true to look at it that way. But he took the opportunity that was available to him. And that really was probably the only way it was ever going to work out. And, and he got put into a place where he was over his head and you know what? You never heard him complain. He never bitched. He never whined about it. And I love his promos, no matter what the case may be. And, uh, he's always been a super cool, um, down to earth, friendly guy and very hospitable to, to me and people around me. So, uh, you know, it was tough to see Phil struggle that way, but he didn't sign up to just succeed. He signed up to have a shot. And I am completely and utterly res- respectful of that. I respect that, and it's, I think it's commendable. 
And, you know, I wish things could have been better for him. But, um, you know, to hell with that. He, he put himself through it and he got out there. He did something that he probably never thought he would do and probably something that he thought was an incredible challenge. And instead of avoiding it, he went straight into it. Definitely a hard transition going from, you know, kind of no background, so to speak, in fighting to kind of just jumping in there into the UFC of all things, which was obviously mm-hmm. number one organization. Definitely a hard thing to kind of try to accomplish something like that. Yes. It, it's a very difficult uh, process, you know, plus, uh, you know, and Phil comes from indie wrestling, old, old, the older, the old indie wrestling uh, set. Uh, and also, you know, WW, the entire sports entertainment route, which doesn't really include any real training at, at all, by and large. And, I mean, I see guys all the time, and I'm like, they don't have a single ounce of actual wrestling ability whatsoever when they're out there. And I can see it. And I, it's, it's just so utterly obvious. And, and to, be on, to be fair to them, they don't need it um, with a lot of the way matches are done, how people are trained. There's very little actual wrestling that goes into any of it. But when you're Sakuraba and you come from a freestyle, uh, a freestyle wrestling background, so he's already out there uh, competing in, real, in wrestling, and then you go and you train in the UWF system. So he's training with Thai boxing champions under Billy Robinson with guys like Tamara and Takata and uh, Yoji Anjo, um, uh, Fujiwara, uh, from when he started in the, I, thought, I think he started in Shinsei UWF, uh, Sakuraba, but maybe he was a UWF guy from the beginning. So even if Fujiwara wasn't there, I mean, still Kazuo Yamazaki, shoot boxing, training at the uh, the Super Tiger Gym. I mean, all this this wealth of real fight knowledge, like all these guys. Even all the guys that people love to talk about in their past, like uh, Misawa or uh, Jumbo or all these, all these guys are like massive amateur wrestling champions. Ricky Choshu was, went to the Olympics, you know, or they all had all this fight training. And then if they didn't go to like the New Japan Dojo, which was almost entirely combat-based, like nothing but shoot stuff for the most part. And then they get out there, and of course they can, you know, they can perform. But it makes it easier for them if they want to transition into doing something like MMA. You know, if given the time to then adequately, you know, set up their training camps, uh, which has always been a big problem for Japanese uh, professional wrestlers going and taking uh, the big MMA fights, is that there wasn't an adequate time to, to allow them to train properly. And uh, you know, it's a lot to ask out of those guys to do that. But, uh, um, yeah, Phil didn't start with that advantage either. And, you know, but he, he, he trains jujitsu. He went to Rufus sport. Like he, he really did. He did his work. There are some guys that just can kind of make that transition. I don't know if a lot of people remember this or know this, but Severn pro wrestler, then MMA mm-hmm. Shamrock pro wrestler, then MMA. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Brock Lesnar would probably be the biggest mm-hmm. name that people can think of now for wrestling MMA, right? It's kind of harder than you think, but some of those guys make it look easy, so it kind of makes it harder for maybe the punks of the world because those guys were so successful at it, former world champions. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Dan Severn was a NCAA runner-up. Uh, he was a highly decorated collegiate wrestler. He wrestled also in the AAU for years. He compete. He did judo. He he's done nothing but but straight up shooting. You know, real real competitive wrestling his whole life. And then it was okay. We'll 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 teach you how to professional wrestle. And Ken Shamrock. He wrestled and played football. He was a competitive athlete his whole life, and then got into professional wrestling. Did get to work, I think, with under the Malencos, and then got sent to the UWF, to where he then learned about submission wrestling and, or basically, catch as catch can, and started doing all the other training that comes from it. Um, and what was the well, Brock Lesnar? Yeah, massive collegiate wrestling star, and you know his original trainer was Brad Reagans, who's a pro wrestler, mm-hmm. but he went to the Olympics in Greco. So again, oh, can you hear me still? Yep. So again, you have a guy with a huge wrestling foundation underneath him. You know, even when you look back at, uh, let's say, let's take Ric Flair. Ric Flair was, I believe, like a highly touted high school football athlete. I think, I believe, he played college football. And he trained at Gagne's barn under Vern Gagne, who's an Olympian in wrestling, and also under Billy Robinson, uh, one of the the greatest modern catch wrestlers there are, trained from the Snake Pit and Wigan. He was a legitimate freestyle wrestler as well. And so that's where his foundation comes from. So the fact that a guy like Ric Flair never looks lost in a ring no matter what happens, doesn't really surprise me. Now, you know, so many guys are talking about kind of transitioning from here and there, but there's so many guys that you have wrestled, whether it's in I, IGF, the uh, Genome mm-hmm. Federation under Inoki and New Japan, that kind of, um, get, kind of you know, did both. Like you wrestled uh, Don Fry and Bob Sapp mm-hmm. and Tank Abbott and Ogawa and Fujita and Minimal Man. I mean, so many kind of cool experiences. Is that kind of cool, you know, not only to say, you know, not that you've fought, you know, really fighting these guys, but isn't that kind of cool to kind of mix it up with them, kind of guys that maybe you respect a lot because they're, you know, real tough guys and real natural fighters? Is that something different and something cool that you're actually able to pro-wrestle these guys? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is in its own way, uh, especially because I, I knew a lot of these guys uh, personally and, and had – good relationships with them. So it was, it was great to be able to go out there and, and be in the ring with them. But, uh, you know, even beyond that, I just, I really, there's a lot of wrestlers that I've, I've had a ton of great time having matches with like, uh, me and Mitsuya and the guy got to the point that we didn't even have to really say anything to each other anymore when we wrestle or anytime I got to wrestle Eugene Nagata or, um, or Manabu Nakanishi, and I used to be able to go back and forth on each other, and it was it was fantastic. So um, it's cool to go out there, and and I think maybe one of the things that I I do I will say that I really appreciate and prefer to wrestle people that do have actual combat sports training because I think that can help a lot towards um, structuring a match and not having to literally plan out every single movement minute by minute through a match because um, ideally I don't plan anything 
I wrestled Jeff Cobb. All I did was I, um, I just I said, oh, you know, what are your main deals, the main stuff that you like to get into? Cool. Here's the kind of, if I'm if I hook you up this way or that way, this is probably what I'm going to do. Uh, so that way, you know, I'm not going to try and do some crazy ass air raid crash out of nowhere. And he's like, well, what the hell, you know, and not know what he's trying to protect himself from. But, uh, and I just said, okay, cool. And then the referee walks up and he goes, what's the finish? And I go, he'll tap. The guy goes, okay. And that's it. We went out there. There was nothing, there was no plan. There was no go home, put together. There was nothing. It was just wrestling. And it was just playing it by ear and by feel. And, uh, the same with Tim Thatcher. I, I never, there was no calling. There was no, there, I mean, maybe there was a little bit of calling here and there in a match, but otherwise nothing is structured. No high spots planned. No match worked out. No go home. Really. It's just, just go, just wrestle. And uh, again, the referee is like, what's the finish? I go, I'll pin him. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And that's what I prefer. Uh, there, if you want to see some of that, I mean, if you can find the Cobb match online or, to, or buy the DVD, even better. Uh, or the match against Thatcher. But, or watch my match versus Hideki Suzuki. Same thing. Almost hardly anything was, was spoken out uh, before the match. There was n- almost nothing built. Just went out there and wrestled. On a shoot ring, by the way, as well. No spring. <laughs> Do you think that that style is actually better than these planned spots and almost that gymnastic style, which seems to be kind of growing in popularity here in the States? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, I, I would say it really depends on the, the athletes. I think that if you want to do high spots and, and any aerial stuff, or I, I think that any of this is totally applicable. I think that all, all those, those elements of wrestling totally can fit as long as you create the right framework. And I feel like as long as you treat it like you're actually trying to win and not just trying to do cool shit. So I think that people will enjoy seeing cool shit, but they won't, it's not going to last forever. And it won't, it lacks probably, I would say that it lacks the emotional depth because you're, I don't know. It just, it doesn't read as being real. And I don't mean real as in like uh, this couldn't, this is a real pile driver or something, but that you're really, doing what it is that you're setting out to besides just tricking. Um, that's just my opinion, but I've seen plenty examples of athletes doing all the kind of stuff that people are like, Oh, well, you just don't like flippy stuff. I'm like, no, no, that's not true. Actually. I, lo- I love watching Will Ospreay and Kushida go at it. I think it's absolutely incredible. And I love how like a guy like Osprey will combo his techniques together and be so urgent and so attacking with the things he does because it seems like he really wants to win and that his ability to leap and twist and turn and be so agile is an advantage that he's going to exploit to the best of his ability, but he knows he doesn't have all day to do it. So it's great. I like seeing that. And I like awesome spots when, you know, when it all fits together and, and things work. But I also feel like the weakness with spot wrestling is that, you're you're working on choreography. And so if you find that you're a step behind or a step ahead, oftentimes you all of a sudden notice, oh, look, that that person's out of position or you can you can tell it shit's kind of falling apart and then one guy will usually 
totally break the fourth wall to get themselves to make sure that they get hit with something or do something so utterly preposterous to make sure uh, some next some other event follows through. And to me, I'm just like, well, that's fucking that's just garbage because you can just see it. It's it, it's it's like the the whole thing just it's like seeing the special effects guy squirting the blood off screen. You can see his hands or something. It's like, come on, I'm trying to watch this movie here. I'm not trying to be reminded about how that's that's not reality. I want to lose my. I want to be lost in this. I want to. I want you to um, suspend my disbelief. And you know, if you if you're working off of choreography, you're stuck to the timing. It's just like if you watched a I don't know like a a, a Vegas dance uh, show, and you have all these people up there doing all their stuff, and you someone's out of time, it's immediate. And that's kind of somewhat where you know you'll get the folks uh, with the you fucked up chance and stuff like that, or people thinking matches aren't good because it's, you see the fluidity break and wrestling combat. Isn't just everything being perfect and smooth and, you know, without any struggle, that's, that's not what combat is. And so when you aim to always try and keep everything look so effortless all the time, it's unnatural and it can be really hard to keep up. Definitely true. I think the realism and the believability is totally lost sometimes when you're trying to do crazy spots or you're trying to memorize things. I feel like the crowd almost can kind of lose, you know, or you can lose the crowd, so to speak, because you're kind of trying to do moves and memorize stuff instead of just naturally making it look like a real contest or making it look like you're attempting to win. Correct. There, there's this attempt to always try and get the crowd to pop too, and it's like, well, you don't need them to pop. To be perfectly honest, not everything mm-hmm. is about that. And uh, you know, some of these guys, I, I feel for them because they're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to create a legitimacy to the things that they do in the ring, but also to elevate their status so that they can get booked and paid. And uh, so they're going to want to go out there and hit all these crazy ass moves, do the 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 whatever the uh, what would you call it the the fad is at the t- whatever the time may be um, like apron spots or stuff like that you know they're going to try and put in all the things that people seem to be into at the moment so that they too can can try to um, you know get that 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 those eyeballs and that that recognition and uh, you know some of these guys just think man you're killing yourselves for nothing sometimes like it's not I think you could you could achieve what you wanted to with doing something else and and more more or less doing less. But there's also some of these dudes are. I, it really shocks me how incredibly athletic they are, and uh, I mean, I'm still worry that they're going to really hurt themselves. But it is their own, it's their own their own choice, right? So I wouldn't tell anybody that he can't do something because I'm worried about him getting hurt. He if he chooses to do something bonkers and hurts himself doing it, you know, I don't want anybody to get hurt, but it is his, his, his personal right to do so. Uh, as long as he's not hurting the other person per se, or, you know, everybody's in on it together. You know, they, they made that decision themselves. They, they made that contract, but, uh, and yeah, there's some wacky, incredible athletes watching some of the crap Ricochet does sometimes. It's like, well, okay. Didn't think that was possible. <laughs> hmm insane some of the flips and some of the stuff he's able to do and 
Mm-hmm. What is it? The uh, six thirty or whatever, seven twenty, whatever the heck he does. I mean, pretty amazing that he could do some of the stuff. And obviously, you know, with you or maybe were calling matches for New Japan on Access TV with uh, Jim Ross and being in the booth, and even before that, Mauro Ronaldo, you probably saw a lot of crazy spots, a lot of crazy wrestling. Are you still uh, with Access TV? Are you still doing the, the calling for New Japan? Is, is JR still a part of the team as well? No, actually. Uh... Uh, New Japan pretty much uh, cut cut out 90% of access uh, as of late last year. Oh. And uh, the production is is done in a very small segment of access that, that's, that, that does some production for them, and it's almost all entirely New Japan world-based, to my understanding. So, uh, you know, we... Myself and Jr. We don't have anything to do with access anymore. And and you know, the wrestling was. I mean, there was always a lot of really uh, incredible moments. And Morrow and I started with, um, you know, Okada's return to New Japan and his first title reign, uh, which I forget when that was, 2013 or something like that. But mm-hmm. the premise was to. And this was, you know, part of TV Asahi, uh, their idea, and I was fully on board with it and agree uh, and will argue it to anyone. But starting back when they did was a, a key point uh, that, that you could start to then introduce the prominent players and prominent storylines um, that are important for New Japan to those that had never seen it. And that was what was so important. Get people that don't watch New Japan or don't watch wrestling at all to watch this product and get sucked in and get into these storylines and, and be, see this wrestling and be completely blown away by it. And, you know, uh, when we first started out, especially I would get so many people hitting me up that were from an MMA perspective and go, I don't like wrestling, but I love this. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, they loved hearing it treated like it's a real contest. And uh, uh, I was blown away about the kind of reception it got. And we, you know, Marl was rated, got ranked or got voted number one uh, commentator uh, by the Wrestling Observer that, after that first season. And I came in third. So um, by, and then JR came on board and I got a chance to work with, you know, the legend himself and uh, a really incredible man. And uh, um, we continued that same um, that same concept of, of treating this a hundred percent legitimate. And, uh, but after a while it did, the wrestling did start to get a lot more crazy spot oriented, um, as up until, you know, even to how I suppose it must be now. I haven't, I haven't watched any new Japan since, since, uh, I guess, November of last year, the last shows, but, yeah, it, it it has taken quite a, a change in terms of the style of wrestling uh, that New Japan is known for. But uh, I have no doubt there are guys out there cranking out some killer killer matches still. And I'm just not. I just haven't seen them. I just love that the, the kind of last time you and Jr. were together. Obviously, Jay White and Juice Robinson did a spot near you guys. And I really thought that you kind of snapped there and you thought you were going to about to get back in the ring and kick Jay White's ass. Um, very kind of like 
funny that, that it happened, but very serious because it looked like Jr. may have gotten injured by that spot. He did. He uh, he busted up his ribs, uh, and there was a concern because he hit his head on the uh, the railing that was directly behind us. And you know, um, the main thing about all of that was that you know, for one, uh, you know, if you're in the WWE and you're going to go outside you can't just grab your worker or grab your wrestling partner or whatever, just start smashing up the announcer's table um, or anything like that or around there without them knowing about it. The office will, will tell you whether that's okay or not. I mean, there, there's no way that you're, you're mashing up their stuff or interfering in any way around there where they don't know about it. And with New Japan, even from the first live show we did in Long Beach, uh, the yeah, the first one at the convention center. Guys are whipping themselves into stuff, and, and Jr. is just and they're like, "What the hell?" You know, why, why do we have to be involved in this? I, I don't, I don't need people flying around and possibly hitting our equipment or mashing into me. Or, and he's kind of coming from a perspective that people will often do that deliberately, try and get, a, uh, you know, get Jr. to get hot at them, and 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 then give them, you know, maybe they can get something to work with. Or to uh, to you know make some some notoriety from themselves. Hey, look here, here I am, and I did you know, just to create interest or or notoriety or whatever, right? And you know, Jr. is always like, man, that just don't do anything around here. Don't don't you know? And and the thing is, nobody ever comes up to us and and asks. And that's the other thing. It's like, well, if you want to start smashing people around into the guard railing in front of us where all of our equipment is. Could you just ask? Could you talk to us? Because ultimately, we want to make you guys look great. And we're in on it, too. And if you just go running around doing whatever you feel like, I mean, for one, I, we're going to do what we can do. But then when you involve us into it, that's a different perspective altogether. And it all, it's almost as if you're you're taking advantage of that situation. And uh, I don't I don't actually... Um, I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I'm not implying any ill will on on Jay and Jay White and and Juice Robinson's part. I don't. I don't believe that at all. But at the time, uh, they were with each other around the railings, and the railings were not secured, and they they were exploding up in the air practically. And they went through and came over, and then looked at looked at us, and I'm like, oh man, and boom, half hat suplex. Uh, you know, 230-pound Juice Robinson right into that railing, and it smashed right into the table. And I, like, rip, rip, just, like, ripped that, the corner of that table right into JR. His chair just completely collapsed underneath him. Boom, and he eats shit, hits his head, smashes up I don't know what. And I'm looking, I look over, and I see people are immediately tending to him. And I look at Juice, and my, uh, uh, not, not Juice, sorry, Jay White, and... You know, it's a it's a tense situation, and I just wanted him to give me some acknowledgement that he knew that he fucked up, and that's it. Because, you know, I don't know this guy, but I tend to feel like there's a lot of disrespect in modern professional wrestling towards old-timers. And I feel like there's a lot of folks that look at wrestling as being nothing to do with combat sports having nothing to do with legitimate wrestling and that it's all art or it's all 
worked and who cares and you know screw kayfabe and you know you don't you don't actually have to know how to do anything for real and that all all these guys that that think otherwise are are just some sort of you know dinosaurs and who cares they're they're just haters and screw those dudes and so and and to me and I won't get into it too much but I always felt like there was some potential um attempt to to torpedo me and JR from some external and internal sources. So I was always quite aware of, uh, of, of, of some, not only what I felt as some disrespectful behavior, but, you know, some things where they, I feel like people were looking to, uh, to get us out of the way to uh, improve their position. And I don't, it's just a theory and maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? But uh, in any case, JR gets annihilated and I'm just thinking, what the hell, man? This is so pointless. And I wanted recognition that that was a that was a screw up, and I didn't get it. And then I got, and then he started shit talking me, and I'm like, that's it. I can't can't hmm. deal with it. And so when I went out there, it was to, yeah, I, I did intend to uh, to make an example out of him, but it was also about about not being reckless about not going just doing anything for your own benefit at the at the possible deficit of others which what happened with JR you know he's a 60 some year old man he doesn't need to be smashed to the table and knocked down to the concrete and hit his head on a on a steel railing he he didn't sign up for that and if you wanted to somehow get him involved in that kind of way then you should ask him you should really ask him. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't the best of scenarios, but I was, I was livid. And I just thought it was just so unnecessary and nobody needed to get hurt. And, and I was mad at, uh, at Uno for not being in control of what I felt, uh, of the match as the referee. And, uh, I just felt it was just so unnecessary. And, you know, and at, at, after the end of the show, they came up to us and, and apologized and, you know, we lectured and we let them have it. But our main point was just that just all you had to do is tell us that was it. And we could have worked something out and we could have made sure that you got whatever it was you were looking for. And, uh, you know, we don't want to get in the way of you guys doing your thing. We don't, we only want to help it if we can. But if you, if you don't include us, or if you treat us in an adversarial relationship, then, you know, there's not much we can do at all. And, and I explained that if they had annihilated the, uh, the, the broadcast equipment, that was it. No more show. <laughs> Nothing that we could do for you. And, uh, you know, that would be dumb too, um, without anybody getting hurt. And the, um, the Kidani, uh, who I believe is the CEO, uh, he mm-hmm. apologized, uh, ghetto, even even I didn't have anything to do with him, and uh, even the current president, uh, uh, I forget his name off the top of my head, Harold, he also Maybe. apologized. But you know, it's also funny to see the difference, the the reactions from the current professional wrestling crop of fan base and and such versus the old school and the Japanese. And to the old school and the Japanese, what went down was. Like, well, you know, that's the kind of shit you're going to get if you do something dumb like that. And, uh, you know, in the past, 
I'm not, you know, people like Inoki or Maeda or whoever, I mean, they would just light your ass up, especially in the back. They, you, you were getting an ass whooping for doing something dumb. And that's just the way it was. And so to the Japanese, the way they saw it was, you know, he screwed up. Those two kids screwed up in their eyes. And that's the way it goes, man. You don't screw around with this stuff. But they also see it as a, you know, they come from that rest, professional wrestling as a combat sport mentality still. still. And, you know, I just wanted to understand. I wanted to talk to them and, and also try to impart why it was so dangerous and reckless and how it could have been so avoided. And then what's funny is now that we talk about it at this point, my intention after that all went down was to never break kayfabe on it. I even told, I told people, don't, don't, because, you know, everybody's square. Jay's getting great heat from it. It made Juice look like an even bigger hero. I don't want to fuck that up. And the hmm. first time I do an interview, JR breaks the fourth wall, and I'm like, ah, God damn it. You know, because as bad as things, you know, were in the heat of the moment and, you know, JR got injured and, he, you know, he was able to heal up and everything. And, you know, two two young young wrestlers got a big stern talking to and, you know, they had to, had to uh, you know, bow their heads and, and, and apologize. But ultimately, I felt like everybody, everybody, we, we were all understood and no one was looking to crucify them for their mistake or anything like that. It was, it was done. Uh, but now we had something that was at least positive that could be used for it. And I remember Takayama said to me one time, he goes about this incident that happened in the ring. I'm watching. I go, dude, what the hell? And he, why, why did that happen? Why did this happen? He goes, you know, I don't really know. This is just an accident, I suppose. But he goes, Jumbo says, if, uh, you know, bad or good, if the audience likes it, it's good. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. Good point. My whole thought was just let's let's use this, man. Let's let's make the most of this situation. And uh yeah, but you know, it's the modern era. Nobody likes to kayfabe anything, so here we are. But uh you know, I didn't have any after after the after all was said and done, I had shots with Jay White and his girlfriend and wanted to sit down and get to know him as a person and uh and show him that I'm not his enemy. Definitely some good stuff there. And, uh, you know, it kind of stinks not a part of the uh, Access TV crew because not only you and Mauro were great, you and JR were great as well. And especially with JR, you kind of get that, that big fight feel, especially, you know, with, with your uh, background and believability and everything else. And with JR, it, it, it made it feel you know, bigger and, and more important, you know, he's a legend and he did all the WrestleManias and, you know, the Steve Austin stuff and, you know, the, the, uh, the call in the hell in a cell, which become like a pop culture phenomenon. So anything he did was big and then you associate with him. It just kind of made it kind of a, had a bigger fight feel to it. Well, I'm glad that that's uh, how it came across to you. And, and we really did want to make people not just, enjoy watching wrestling, but we always wanted to make sure that, that, that people felt like these guys and were just, were, they weren't just some sort of, you know, they weren't pro wrestlers in, in quotes, but that these were, you were watching serious athletes that, you know, have seriously perfected their craft and, and were really putting it all on the line. And, you know, I wanted, even in, in how I called matches, I wanted to, 
trying I always wanted to keep that realism in there and also to never in a way make the wrestlers look weak if I could help it like something similar would be a young bucks going for a I remember they were going for a, a Meltzer driver but to the outside and uh going over the top rope to do it and it's pretty crazy high impact stuff right like that should that should be a match if it's over you just uh spike pile driver the crap out of somebody on the outside yes but you can see in the slow-mo that you know he didn't land exactly on his head and there's a little and you know what so what that's my point is that i'm not going to say that they that there was a screw-up it's not a screw-up at all it's just combat and for me it's like well see they didn't catch him quite flush you know, could have been slippery. It's a long match, really sweaty, and, you know, it's hard to, to line that angle up coming from, you know, downtown like, like he was off the probably uh, 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 Nick coming off of the ropes over the top outside. I mean, it's a lot to ask out of somebody. And so I wanted to make it seem like, well, that's the only reason that this guy's not dead or pinned right now. And also that, you know what, they're going for it. They're trying to win right now. And the fact that if they didn't win with that move, doesn't mean that they aren't capable of winning with that move or that that move is not strong enough or whatever. It's just a fight. And that's how it is. You know, if somebody would make a little error here or there, to me, it wasn't an error. It was just a match. If the choreography gets broken and they're going for something, it's just a match. If I can, if I can keep it that way and that nobody made a mistake, they're just going for it. Or maybe they did make an error but errors happen, and they, they're not screwing up wrestling. They're just having a match. Sometimes a person throws a punch and loses their footing. Sometimes a guy goes for some technique and loses it, misses it. And it happens, you know, and that shouldn't condemn a wrestler, and it shouldn't make him look bad. Exactly. If it's going to happen in a real fight or something, you know, something could happen where it's not – absolutely perfect. I think that's good in pro wrestling because it kind of makes it look like more of a real contest. So do I. And uh, I don't think that there was a, I think there's a subsect of wrestlers and fans that didn't see it that way. But I also think there was a subsect that wanted us to be like gimmick announcers where one guy would, would rant and rave about some, somebody because what, you know, be like Jesse, the body and, and, and gorilla monsoon. And that was never going to be our, position for, for one uh you know or like bobby the brain and gorilla and i'm like i'm never going to try and be bobby the brain Heenan because that man was a goddamn genius and that would just hmm. be an insult to bobby the brain Heenan. but i also felt like that's not what i want to do and i feel like there's enough of that already in wrestling but there is nobody who wants to treat it like it's like it counts and i i wanted to and i think you know there's a there's a, a group i think there's a lot of people that liked it that way too but and I'm, not, I'm trying to tell you how to like your wrestling. Hey, let's pause one second here to tell you about the benefits of using Blue Chew and BlueChew.com. Now, you don't need to be a genius to know the benefits of Blue Chew, but for those of us that need to be enlightened, how about this? It's the first ever chewable, so you don't have to sit in that doctor's office and look like an idiot and wait for your turn. It's got the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, and it's fast-acting, and you can use it on a full stomach. And it comes in very discreet packaging, so your nosy-ass mailman isn't going to know what you're going to be doing and taking care of business 
in your bedroom later tonight. And if I had to give Blue Chew a grade, I would give it a G-O, as in go to bluechew.com and use the promo code POWERTRIP and get your first shipment free and pay only $5 shipping. Again, it's bluechew.com, B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Use the promo code POWERTRIP and take advantage of our very special offer. So get over to bluechew.com right now because using Blue Chew outweighs any of the other alternatives that are out there and make your weekend perfect. And why don't you go and spice up the finer things of life? Now, you know, obviously we're talking about a pro wrestling. We kind of started with a little bit of Yuji Nagata and your debut against him. We're talking about Koshaka. And both those guys kind of have something in common where they both have lost to arguably the greatest heavyweight, arguably the greatest MMA fighter, probably my favorite MMA fighter of all time, that's Fedor. So I just have to mention mm-hmm. this because I feel like this a question that I always want to ask. In Pride, obviously, you know, when Pride was at, at its top, I don't know if a lot of fans today realize it because, you know, they, they kind of just think of modern and whatever's in front of the face today. So they just think MMA, UFC. But when Pride was killing it, they were number one. I mean, they were way ahead of UFC. I mean, the crowd, money, yeah. talent, everything was, was, was well ahead. In Pride, and obviously you were part of that. Uh, Big Nog, who you, you fought twice as part of that. Crow Cup, we fought three times as a part of that. But how come you and Fedor never fought? Not not the Affliction thing and not that whole thing. But how come you guys never fought in Pride? It just didn't line up. Uh, that, that's it, you know. Um, it was a fight that the, I think that they really wanted to make at some point, but I don't know. I don't know exactly why. Uh, I know that if I was going to fight him, I would not want to do it on like a every other month type thing like I was for some of these fights. I'm like, all right, let me uh, let me sit down for a training camp and get ready for this because it's going to be a title fight. And uh, I don't know, it just didn't didn't formulate. So, yeah, uh, who maybe maybe it's a possibility um, now somewhere, uh, but uh, no, I don't know. I, I, you know, Pride was huge. It was the far bigger market we they were drawing i mean still to be honest pride numbers are bigger than ufc house numbers they still are and the ufc has never put on a show that has outdrawn a pride show to this point and that's not against the ufc i mean the ufc is not the sole element that that creates a draw i mean there's also the culture and country which you're a part that, that you're trying to draw in as well and so and how amenable they are and wanting for that product too. So a lot of things that go into it, but even back then, you know, 2004, five, six and wrestling, even though it had some decline from the nineties, cause that was incredible. That era, we were still doing two Tokyo dome shows a year, 40, 50,000. And I know people try to say, Oh, well the numbers were docked, uh, doctored. And I'm like, they weren't doctored that much because I've seen what a Wrestle Kingdom show looks like. And I've been there during pre-Wrestle Kingdom uh, New Japan Dome shows. And we had more people. It just I've been in these arenas before. I've been in there for K1. I've been in there for Pride. I know what it looks like. And, you know, back then, Inoki era, uh, New Japan outdrew any Wrestle Kingdom that's ever existed. But... Wrestle Kingdom, what's more important and more interesting to me is that Wrestle Kingdom, where it started and where it's to as of this year, is a massive improvement. And it shows that 
that wrestling is coming back around and, you know, trend, things go in trends and, and wrestling, you know, took a hard hit. Women's wrestling was, was, had taken a harder hit first. And there was a point where there were rim, women's wrestlers that were releasing singles, uh, music singles and having them top the charts and things like that. But women's wrestling had, had really kind of come down. Um, and then MMA even followed suit as well. And it went into downturn. So, all things happen, and you know, but it's great to see that one stardom seems to be going strong. And while that's not like all Japan women's was in the '80s, you know, what something was and what it is now, two different things. And stardom is doing great stuff for women's wrestling over in Japan and bringing over great talent from abroad. Um, you know, so much so that I really insisted that that Shayna, uh, before she went to the, the WWE in any sense went over to Japan and toured over there. That was an experience that I I felt that she needed to have, that she would only be made a far better wrestler from it, and that it was an experience that you just you couldn't describe to someone and you would never get anywhere else. And to see that Wrestle Kingdom is now, you know, hitting the upper 30,000s, that's excellent. That's great news for professional wrestling. And I hope that, uh, you know, as as it continues to that that as that trend continues to grow, you know it's just like the uh, God. What is that phrase? Uh, raise a high tide raises all ships. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, as New Japan faltered uh, in the mid or late towards the late two thousands, so did all the other wrestling companies. In fact, they faltered first, and uh, it it'll it would be nice to see Japanese wrestling. Um, get get some more groundswell all across the board. Wrestle Kingdom definitely kind of bringing it back and definitely bringing a lot of fans. But, you know, I see people right online and I immediately, you know, kind of mention to them, they're saying, oh, it outdrew this or it outdrew uh, Wrestling World back when the Tokyo Dome show was called Wrestling World. I said, not if you, if you really look at it, because the set that they use now is like three times bigger. So it actually makes less seats. There's actually less mm-hmm. audience. So back in, in, in the early 2000s, even, you know, there was bigger crowds because there was more seating. Sure. Well, you know, wrestling was just bigger then. And the, the, a lot of these folks, one, they didn't live in Japan like I did. And two, they're, they, they weren't of that era. They weren't watching it then. They weren't a part of that paradigm when it existed. And so they look at it from a different perspective. Plus, it seems like people have this really weird idea that because previous eras of New Japan drew better money or, and bigger houses, that that somehow means this era is bad. And it's like, no, it's not one thing. It's a lot of things, you know, and technology has changed a lot of how, how you're going to uh, watch wrestling and get your news and how the, the cycles go with how, how quickly things turn over. Um, fan bases, generational changes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that accounts for that. And so, you know, Wrestle World, all the Wrestle Worlds outdrew any Wrestle Kingdom. Any Wrestle World I was ever part of, we did at least probably 20,000 more than a Wrestle Kingdom did. But different era, different time, different things. And, you know, Wrestle Wrestle Kingdom is is making uh, a huge impact globally in wrestling, but maybe because of the speed of the the technology the the news cycles now, and also because of 
uh, streaming and other technology elements, there's things that are that are cutting away from what maybe that live audience could be, even beyond just what the stage setup is. Um, but I can't see Wrestle Kingdom, no, no matter what argument you want to get into about, you know, tickets sold, as anything but a success, and a great success and a success that is needed, um, not just for New Japan, but for all of wrestling, and all of, not just Japanese wrestling, but all of wrestling. I think it's doing, it's doing good things for everyone. And so, ultimately, you know, all the folks that want to try and always bash on what they want to call uh, Inoki, New Japan. It's just like you're, well, without Inoki, you wouldn't even have a New Japan at all. You wouldn't have any of the stars you've ever loved from New Japan. You wouldn't have a dojo that created all the, all the wrestlers you've loved that have come from it. You would have none of this, and you wouldn't even have an argument to make. But the point, but the thing that's being lost in the shuffle is that New Japan is doing great business now, and it's doing great things for some of its wrestlers, and it's doing great things to bring more wrestling around the world to everyone, and that's great. Well said, absolutely. And as we start to hit the wind down, we wind it down here. I mean, man, your career is just uh, is amazing. When you look at the, the MMA, 35-8 and eight basically record, uh, unbelievable who you fought. I mean, who's who is just an amazing resume you have. And then the pro wrestling world where you made such a smooth transition, main event at the Tokyo Dome. And I know you mentioned a couple favorite matches before as far as wrestling. Do you have some other favorites maybe that we wouldn't even think of that you had over there in Japan? Or, or, or maybe, you know, just some random matches that you could just think of? Uh, well, yeah, my match versus Kyoshi Tamura I felt like was was pretty good. I always wanted a, to, to get another shot at that guy because I, I think he's fantastic. I had a match against Naya Ogawa. And IGF, I think, went pretty well. Uh, my match versus Jerome LeBanner, which was very much like a kickboxer versus wrestler match. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, and when I was in New Japan, uh, Scott Norton and I had, had some good singles against each other. And... Um, Kind of hard, you know. Every time I got to wrestle Mitsuya Nagai, I always felt like it was a good time. And uh, and I don't know, if, I don't think any of these were taped, but uh, I did the opening matches during a G1 climax, um, and they pretty much lined me up with nothing but former UWF rings type guys, match night after night after night. And so I had a fight coming up at the end of it to defend my King of Pancreas title against uh, Semi Shield and Inoki Bombay in Kobe. And uh, I would just go out there and say, okay, so and so every show, before every show, I would train in the ring and hit pads and wrestle and grapple with people. I would run the bleachers of every single stadium we worked and, uh, and lift a few times a week. So I was using this as a training camp as well as, you know, an opportunity to go out there and show the skills of professional wrestling. And every night I'd get out there with someone like uh, Masuki Naruse, or Masito Kakihara, and I just go, okay, let's just go 90%. And if you knock me out, I'm knocked out, and I guess you win. And that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But if we get through whatever we're doing out there and it gets to a point, then we'll just go home. All right? All right. And I think the first match of the night, the first match of that series I had was Kakihara, and the dude just 
nails me with a palm strike right in the freaking eye, blackens my eye, and we're just going at it. I'm landing stop, stuff on him and chopping his legs, and we're going toe-to-toe with each other, and then we'll hit the mats and we'll wrestle and, you know, we'll we'll just let each other hit a few big big suplexes here and there and work into stuff. But, you know, all the striking on the feet is 90%, you know, you're going to get – you could get your nose broke, knocked out, your eyes, you, your cut, whatever. It could all happen. But, uh, you know, everything went through. And then we go into the back and he goes, man, I missed that. It was so much fun. I remember what that was like when we used to wrestle in UWF. That was hmm. incredible. <laughs> it was a it was a blast, you know. I also tried to get uh, Suzuki Minoru – uh, he tagged with uh, Takayama, and I had uh, say on my side. And I said, all right, hey, Suzuki, because we were training together on the road all the time. And uh, I said, hey, let's, uh, let's go out and let's, uh, let's, let's go after each other a little bit. Let's, uh, let's uh, go hold for hold and move around and do some stuff. And he's like, all right. And so we go out there, we do a couple back and forth, and, and he just breaks off and walks away. And I'm like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I thought we were going to get some action in on you. He just smirks at me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. I'm just a stupid kid. <laughs> I get it. You were the young babyface assassin at that point. Yes, yes, I was. And I was totally starstruck to be able to spend time on the road with Minoru Suzuki and to be in the ring with him. Hell, uh, when I made my debut uh, for New Japan at Wrestle, uh, Wrestle World against Yuji Nagata, I wore a black towel over my head in homage to Minoru Suzuki, who was not pro wrestling at the time, but, uh, you know, he was always one of my favorite fighters in Pancras. And so that was my, my homage to the black hall as he was nicknamed. Hmm. Great, great stuff. And obviously, uh, he will be a part of the big GCW show you got coming up, which I will mention just in a minute. But I wanted to kind of just um, ask you about some favorite fights you had. I know I was at uh, back in 2011 down in Dallas, Texas, part of the Overeem Verdum um, Strike Force, the big tournament. I was there when you submitted Brett Rogers, and I was like, man, I was like, uh, you know, he's a big guy. I definitely think you were going to win, but the e- relative ease that you kind of beat him and tapped him out. And then, um, you know, just being there live, I was like, man, it, it, it's just impressive. Cause you think is when you, when you see somebody like Brett Ryder, like, man, this guy is dangerous. Got to watch the hand. You kind of, you know, had no problem taking him down and submitting him. So do you have some favorite fights uh, possible, you know, looking back? Oh, well, I mean, that was fun in its own right. Hitting that double overhook Salto and landing right in Mount and then choking him. That was, Nothing, nothing, hate, nothing I could dislike about that. Hmm. Um, and then uh, I, I think my my fights versus Semi Shilt were always uh, pretty entertaining. Uh, a lot to watch. My fight versus Nogueira, I guess both of them, but I really like, you know, the first one is better, I, in my opinion, since I won. Hmm. But uh, I believe I won the second one, too. But Yeah, I was going to say, that, yeah, that's all you won. If you want to go to the judge's decision, then it's out of your hands. So. Uh, my fight versus Yuki Kondo and uh, um, uh, I could choose a fight where I just steamroller a guy, but that's not the same. Uh, a good a good scrap to watch. I mean, I've I've been, I've enjoyed all of them <laughs> to be honest, even the ones that sucked. Uh, hmm. I love getting out there and uh, and getting in combat. I love I love that that place. 
that's actually surprised you were able to steamroll Karatanov kind of as, as easily as you were able to submit him because, you know, he's obviously part of the pride days as well was pretty dominant, but you know, he's a great fighter as well. Yes. He, he was, uh, he was a bit bigger than I had remember than he had been in the past. He was a pretty sizable dude. Uh, and he's got a good Sambo background. Um, but that boxing of his and his striking heavy handed, heavy chin, uh, although as of past few years, he's shown that the, he does have some proclivity to get knocked out, but you really got to be a big puncher and you got to catch him just right, I think. Uh, and it's still a bit of a risky, risky play because if that guy starts putting anvils on you, you're going down. I'm pretty sure of it. Uh, but thankfully, I didn't let him really hit me much at all. <laughs> took him down and uh, yeah. Managed to make short work out of him, but uh, I attribute that to you know uh, my strong catch wrestling background and wrestling background, and being able to to uh, to keep him pinned on the mat. If you think about your career, just look back and how many you know former champions or number one contenders or something that you that you either beat or that you fought. It's crazy. I mean, you beat Couture. I wouldn't say relative ease, but you beat Randy Couture for the U.S. title, um, UFC uh, heavyweight title. You beat Mir. You beat Arlovsky. I mean, pretty damn good resume. When you kind of look back, are you saying, you know, one of the greatest of all time? Because if you really look, the resume holds up pretty damn well against a lot of other fighters. I'm not going to say it, but, you know, um, I'm pretty proud of the work that I've managed to put out there. So, you know, I guess if people want to create those discussions, it's really up to their subjective taste. But, uh, you know, my job is to go out there and to win. And, you know, when given the opportunity, I'm still still looking to get back in the ring and, and put a few more of these under my belt until I'm ready to call it good. Obviously, you know, your last fight was a couple of years ago in the UFC. You've gone from the UFC now. Is there any chance uh, of Bellator, who's really kind of pumping up, and obviously you work with Scott Coker before in, in Strike Force, mm-hmm. but they're really, really pumping up the heavyweights and Ryan Bader there. And obviously, I know Bader's contract's up, but he might have maybe a, a retirement match, a retirement fight, so to speak. And they got so many other good heavyweights kind of going in and out. Mira is a part of Bellator. Uh, Karatanov, like we mentioned, is part of Bellator. I mean, they have so many heavyweights there. Um, Minikoff just resigned with them. Is there a possibility of going to Bellator and kind of, you know, restarting the MMA career? It's totally in Scott Coker's hands. If that's, if that's something he wants, he can make it happen. Uh, otherwise, you know, I'm just looking for interesting fights uh, and hopefully interesting locations. <laughs> hmm. Now, obviously, you know, we mentioned MMA and pro wrestling and you got so much going on, but do you have any regrets kind of looking back uh, either wrestling or MMA or anything that you, you weren't able to accomplish? Does that Fedor fight kind of bother you at all that it never really came to fruition or is it possible it can happen in the future? Well, it is possible it could happen in the future, but yeah, that's a disappointment. Uh, never being able to fight Krokop at a hundred, at anywhere near a hundred percent. Yeah. That sucks too. Not winning the uh, strike force open weight grand prix. I, I should have won our the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix. There, that, I should not have lost that match, but you know, broke my hand 22 seconds in, and uh, I didn't adjust appropriately. So it was a great – for me, it's one of my greatest fights of all time and for reasons that have nothing to do with winning or losing. But, uh, um, yeah, not getting that belt, there's, I should, that should never be a loss that I should have ever taken. Um, but – 
you can all you can do is look back on these experiences for what they are. They're experiences, they're data, they're opportunities to create growth. And if you can't grow from these things, if they if they ultimately don't net out to to really be a positive towards making you a better you, then you've really missed something. And you're obviously referring to the, the Cormier fight, which was was definitely a great fight. Goes five rounds, and like you mentioned, you did break your hand pretty early on. So I mean, it's kind of a, it was kind of a downer there. Yeah, well, my whole game plan was built around the jab. Uh, and, you know, it was working pretty well to begin with, but then, you know, 23 seconds worth of work isn't really enough to, to get going. <laughs> I, I firmly believe if I'd been work, if I'd been able to continue to use my jab, that uh, uh, I, I think I could have uh, taken him out by the third or fourth. But even without that tool at my disposal, um, I didn't make the proper adjustments I needed to and just kind of turned it more into a bit of a brawl. And he managed to out-wrestle and out-point and out-control at times. And so that screwed everything up. It's just like, well, I can do damage. I can chase after him. I can I can try to engage him in a, like, let's see who dies first kind of thing, and then only end up getting single-legged and held on to. It's like, oh. and then here goes the clock. And then, oh, round's over, and then, I'll come back out, get a hold of me, press me on the cage, maybe get a takedown, hold me some more, and then, oh, that, that round's over too. It's like, well, I'm the idiot because I didn't, I didn't alter his, his uh, ability to implement what he wanted to do and to find his, his way around whatever I was trying. So, you know, made me smarter, made me a smarter fighter. But I also learned a lot of really important things from that fight uh, in other ways. So uh, it is what it is. Now, when people look back at the war master, Josh Burnett, and look back at not only your career in MMA, but look at your wrestling career and great decorated career as a trainer, like you mentioned, Shana Baszler, and you're doing and, and Hideki Suzuki, and you're doing all this great training. So, I mean, there's definitely more than just, you know, the fighter and the wrestler. But when they look back, what do you think is the legacy that you'll leave behind? I don't know. Uh, I no matter what, I'm I feel very positive that whether it's recognized or it isn't, that I will have done a lot more good in this world than I've done bad. I've that I've I've given to those that um, that that earned it the the things that were given to me, and I passed on what other folks had who had believed in me had had, had done to others, and so. Um, you know, that's already a successful for me, but, uh, it, you know, it's kind of funny. What is my legacy? I don't know what my legacy is going to be. I mean, I don't know how anyone could exactly, but funny enough, I kind of feel like if perhaps if I, if I don't rattle, uh, any chains, I, I don't know that I'll have much of a legacy at all because, uh, you know, we can talk about these people that I've trained, but I often don't really seem to get recognized for, training fighters and especially training professional wrestlers and having a stake in some of these guys that people uh, really seem to love so much. And it's like, well, it, you know, I've worked with them. I helped them to get there. So, you know, ultimately it's, it's their glory. You can't take that away from anybody and you never should. Uh, no one person is responsible for anybody being um, what it is that you see out there, but uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't even know that the people even 
adequately uh, attribute Shayna Baszler and not just what she does as a pro wrestler because you know, I started teaching her how to pro wrestle from square one too. Uh, it was a conversation where I said, well, you know, you're getting out of fighting. Would you like to do pro wrestling? I think you seem like you're pretty into it. And she goes, yeah, I think I'd like to. Okay. Well, it's just like when I was your MMA coach, which I had been for, um, I don't know, almost a decade or maybe a decade. And, uh, all right, well, I'm, here we go. And I, I, in the past I'd had her train with Billy Robinson when he was around doing his seminars and, uh, and like I, I brought in people to help work with Shayna, in addition to just myself, uh, like um, Chavo Guerrero, Bobby Lashley. Uh, she got to work with with Phil, CM Punk, uh, John Morrison. Uh, you know, all kinds of folks that I have connections to, just to give her a different perspective. And then, you know, I trained her how to be a pro wrestler the way I was trained how to be a pro wrestler. And so that fundamental foundation, what you see out there, I'd like to think is um, part of what, what we worked on as a fighter and what I instilled in her as a wrestler. Now, obviously, you know, we started off talking about GCW on April 4th, coming up at the White Eagle Hall in Jersey City, New Jersey, at Josh Barnett's Bloodsport. It's going to be huge. It's going to be awesome. And it's really, really something to look forward to during WrestleMania weekend. And if you're not really a big WB fan and you want to be entertained by real wrestling and, you know, wrestling the way it should be, definitely head out to the show. Josh, please give us, you know, what, maybe one last pitch for the show and then please give us some other plugs you got, social media and otherwise. Easy enough, man. If you, if you want to go out there and see the most competitive and the hardest hitting event of all WrestleMania week, then you got to come and you got to see Josh Barnett's blood sport. Um, we are not going to be satisfied to just be another wrestling show. We're going to be that show that's going to give you that thing that you cannot get anywhere else. And I promise that we will deliver on that. Nowhere will you be able to get it. Not in the biggest show, not in the smallest show that week. You're only getting it one place. So uh, you can get your tickets at Eventbrite. Uh, and also through the collective, which I think that's also might be a ticket that's through Eventbrite where you can buy a ticket. You can buy tickets, uh, ticket packages that'll get you through all GCW events uh, during WrestleMania week, like Joey Janela's spring break, which I do believe is sold out already. But nonetheless, uh, there are rows that are already sold out for Bloodsport. So do not wait or else you will not have a seat. All right. Awesome stuff. And please, um, social media, where you know wherever the fans can find you, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, etc. All of them, <laughs> like everybody else nowadays. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at um, facebook.com/slash Josh Burnett Official. I think it is, um, which is my Facebook fan page, which I do run. And then there is also uh, my Instagram and Twitter, which is the same handle at Josh L Barnett. All right. Thank you so much uh, for all the time you gave us tonight. It's been awesome. And I just think of you not so much as the war master, but I always think of the babyface assassin, you know, so dominant in UFC, awesome in pride, and just one of my favorite fighters of all time. So thank you so much. It's been really an honor to have you on. I mean, I've been waiting a while to do this, so definitely, definitely pleasure is all mine. You're very welcome. 
Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.